it's um, it, it's a, a new series uh, that we're jumping into for this summer. Uh, so it's our, it's our typical practice just to preach through books of the Bible. We just finished Titus in the New Testament, and so I like to be varietal, and so we're going to go to the Old Testament this summer, and we're going to look at um, some Psalms in the Old Testament. So if you have little to no familiarity with the Bible, uh, you probably are familiar at least a little bit with some Psalms, some of the, some of the maybe more popular or famous Psalms, but um, the Psalms are, are unique, and they're they're really this kind of this special, almost a sanctuary for God's presence to dwell. Not to, to highlight or elevate one section of Scripture higher than others, but, but the Psalms can be a very precious thing to the believer. And, and maybe, they are, maybe they're that for you. Um, but more than really the individual devotional type of component, like if, you know, if, if you don't know where to read in the Bible, a lot of times we just turn to the Psalms, right? Like just let me just read through a Psalm and that'll, that'll encourage me. But, but more than the individualistic component, the Psalms were actually always meant to be a corporate link for God's people. And so this summer, we're going to look at um, a, a particular section of the Psalms um, called the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, there's there's 15 of them, so uh, beginning in Psalm 120. So if you have your Bible, you can you can start flipping or turning on there. We're going to be in Psalm 120 today, um, and so there there's these 15 songs, and and the Psalms are songs. So I'll I'll be referring to them throughout the series as both a Psalm or a song, uh, same same thing. But but the unique thing about these ones that we're going to look at um, is that it's been really historically believed by the church that these 15 songs were the particular uh, playlist, as it were, for uh, faithful Hebrew Israelites as they would ascend, hence Psalms of Ascent, to Jerusalem uh, three times a year for their annual feasts. And so, you know, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, these were three seasonal feasts that the Israelites would leave their hometowns and ascend towards the motherland, towards Jerusalem. And a lot of times this topographically and geographically meant climbing hills. And so Psalms of Ascent. And so their eyes would be lifted up towards Zion, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, and towards a Godward life. And they would, they would oftentimes, it's believed, sing these songs as they're ascending. And so, so that's kind of the, the ancient context, but, but the bridge for, for the modern-day believer is that these, these are our playlists too. And so though we don't journey to Jerusalem anymore, though the, the dwelling place of God is with his people by his spirit in us, no longer do we ascend on these journeys, they, they still really, they they walk with us, and they really sing us through what it means to walk with God, what it means to live the upward life towards God in the person of Jesus. And so this, this series, I'm hoping, becomes just really a couple of things. One, I hope that it becomes a, a great reminder for who we are in Christ and where we're going like the journey that we're on as believers and what it means to be on that rugged path of discipleship with Jesus. I, ho- I hope it does that for us. But I, but I also hope that it, it strikes some, some chords musically in your soul, that it, that it really resonates with who you are and where you're at in life 
and that you connect with the text in new ways. Um, I always try to come up with, I guess, maybe catchy titles for the sermon series just to attract your attention. But I, I've, I've titled this one, this series, Soundtrack of the Soul. Um, soundtrack of the Soul, that, that, that we would see in these 15 particular psalms something that has to do with our soul care and our soul life with God. So let's, let's read the first one this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 120. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words, I believe, projected for you. Actually, I don't think I typed those up. Typo. Yeah, my guys did. They're so good. Um, so Psalm 120 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we love to give away Bibles, so you can grab one of those on your way out. Um, but here's, here's the word of the Lord in Psalm 120. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let's pray together. Father, we are hopeful that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock. You are our redeemer. Would you do that today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a world uh, that has uh, really adapted travel in all new ways. Uh, No longer is the the way of the road atlas, the way of getting somewhere, the map. You young folks don't even really know what a a paper road atlas is. But we live in in a day of, of traveling with GPS, you know this global pointing system that tells us where to go. We, we type in the, the address that we want to go to, and it takes us there. Now, there are two types of people when you're dealing with, with GPS. There are people who are fiercely loyal to the GPS to a fault. This is my wife. <laughs> Heather will, if we are going far away, not, I'm not talking about in-town travel, I'm talking across-the-country travel. She will plug in the address, like as we sit down to get in the car, plug it in and just let it start driving us. Just fiercely loyal and trusting that this unit is going to get us where we need to be. Like, doesn't, like, you know, broaden the screen to make sure that we're, like, at least headed in the general, vague, right direction. Like, total loyalty to, to, the, to, the, to the device. I'm not like that. There, there, there are other people. There, there, there are people who are very lurking and suspicious of these machines. And that's me. Um, I will not just plug in an address and just follow the, the directions because I've done that before. And that has led me astray many a times. I don't know if you've ever had that occur to you, but it, but it, it takes you not just a couple doors down. It takes you to an alternative universe somewhere far away from where you intended to go. And so, so my approach to, to the GPS is, is always this lurking suspicion. Like, are you, are you going to get me where I need to be? Like, are you really telling me the truth? See, we, 
we live in a, a world, really, that is, that is filled with lies. Um, it's filled with malicious intent. Uh, it's filled with, you know, hashtag fake news. Like, we, we really live in a world where we have so much information around us and technology advancing us that what it's doing is actually, and rightfully so, creating suspicion within us. That it's creating this, this eye towards all things that could potentially be lying to us. You know, we, we live in a world that's filled with marketing and advertising geniuses that tell us what we want before we even know it. Right? We, you know, we live in a world full of entertainers that, that provide this cheap substitute for lasting joy in, in the form of entertainment. And so it's like they're kind of selling us short on what joy could actually be. We live in a world full of politicians that attempt to instruct us in what power looks like and what morality ought to look like. So there's suspicion around that. And we live in, in a world with psychologists that are telling us how to shape our behavior in order to live a happy and fulfilling life. And, and so all of these different components are, are really swirling around our lives. And really, we are asking ourselves constantly, what's true and what is not true? What's the lie? You know, we've been told lies our whole life, like lies like people are basically nice and good. Lies like the world is a pleasant and harmless place. Lies that tell us that injustice and evil can easily be escaped through a long vacation. And then the biggest of all lies, we've been told that everything is really okay. Um, the psalmist in 120 is in a scenario that we don't really know all the details to. But he's in a scenario where his world is spinning around because he's got so many lies around him that he doesn't know which way is up and which way is down. And he gets to really rock bottom. And he begins to show us, the psalmist, and I think I'm hoping that this is the direction that it will point us to, he begins to show us that, that, that if we want to, to begin to have an appetite for the way of grace that's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus, so connecting it to Jesus. But if we want to begin to have an appetite for grace, first it starts with having a distaste for for the lies that are around us. We have to become fed up with it. This psalmist is really fed up. He's tired of it. He's exhausted. He's come to an end of himself, and he's he's come out as, as crying to the Lord. Here's, here's the big thing I want us to take away from the, from the passage today. I want you and I to see that saying no to the world's lies and saying yes to God's truth is both the first and the final step of the Christian's journey. Okay, So saying no to the world's lies, yes to God's truth, this is the first and the final step of the believer. Here's, here's the three things, uh, how the, really the structure of the, the psalm breaks down. I want us to look at, uh, first, the distress of lies. Then I want us to look at the deceit of lies. And then I want us to look at the destruction of lies. So let's, let's look at the distress in uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, the soundtrack of, of the psalms here, the psalms of ascent, begins with a sad song. Uh, it's a song of lament. 
So in the Psalms, there's lots of different genres and styles of writing, but this one begins with a sad song. And let's be honest, none of us really always want to start with the, the sad, sappy love song. Like, that's not really how we prefer it. We kind of prefer upbeat and happy. Um, I've, been, I've been in a number of conversations lately. Uh, you know, we're, we have little kids, and so we're kind of in parenting world right now. And, and really, the, the floating conversation, at least the engaging part of the conversation right now to initiate conversation with parents, is what are you doing this summer? Like, what are you doing with your kids this summer? And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like there's this, there's this cultural pressure to be happy. Like, like it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like Memorial Day kind of kicks off when fun and happiness is supposed to start, I think. Like, okay, Memorial Day has rolled through. Kids are out of school. Summer's officially here, so let the fun begin. And, you know, I just, I mean, thinking about how this psalm begins with sadness, I, th- I do think there's this pressure. It's like, what are you going to do for fun all the time? What's fun and happy for you? And, and how are you fulfilling that? And, and just guilty as charged, woefully fallen short. We have zero plans really for fun for our kids this summer. In fact, I've had the, the, the parenting guilt. Like, we really, we're not doing swimming lessons. We're not doing sports. So, so like, when parents ask me right now, what's the fun you're going to have to have fun all summer and be fun and happy? My answer is, we're going to play in the backyard. Like right now, it's it's really it's really it's kind of sad, but but the but the psalm begins with the, a sad song of lament. I mean, you look at verse one, and it just it just dives right in. In my distress, I called to the Lord. His distressed concern over the circumstances of his life have driven him to the point where he can do nothing but cry out to the Lord. And for you and I, who live in a world that has the cultural pressures of being happy all of the time, that's a hard place to be. But the psalmist is there. And I think he's there for a reason, and I think that the, the, the section of these psalms begins here because here's why. Distress breeds change. Like, when you come really to a place in your life where you don't know which way is up and down, that's when actually God brings about most change in your life, the potential for change. So like I mentioned, we don't really know the, the fullness of this psalmist's circumstances. You know, there's some suggestions that perhaps his reputation in the community had been slandered. And so maybe his, his character was called to question his activity in, in religious or political or social life was, was doubted. You know, maybe there were some false accusations. Maybe he was called a hypocrite for his faith. We don't really know the circumstances, but we know it brought him to this point of distress, to the point of crying out, deliver me. Deliver me, Lord. See, what the psalmist knows, and what you and I need to know, is that the admission of need is the beginning of change. Baseline 101, what it means to be a believer in Jesus is that all God needs from you is your neediness. Like that's what we bring to the table is neediness. And and it's not just it's not just knowing neediness, because I know that you know you're needy, like theologically speaking. 
Like, you know that you bring nothing to the table, but it's one thing for you to know your neediness, and it's entirely different for you to experience your neediness. See, the psalmist is in the middle of experiencing neediness like he never has before. He has come to an end of himself because here's the reality. Information will never change you. I can, for till I am blue in the face, tell you how needy you are. But until you experience your own neediness, your own emptiness, your own void, it'll never change you. So the psalmist begins to be changed and cry out of his distress for deliverance because of his neediness. We see the distress of lies, but... Secondly, we see the deceit of lies. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if the guys put up the title of the sermon at the beginning. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Lion Eyes. That ring a bell for anybody? Give, give it to me, Ed. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to attempt this series to name all of my sermon titles after songs, um, and you'll get bonus crowns in heaven uh, if you get the, 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 the artist right. So lion eyes, this whole crowd's like, who are the eagles? Um, I'm sorry, guys. I, I will not pick on you the whole service, just a little bit. It's just so easy with the shirts. It's so easy. Um, but the eagles, uh, I'm going to do my best to you know, expand variety, genre, generation, but we're going to start with the Eagles. The Eagles have a song called Lion Eyes, and if you're not familiar with the song or the content of the song, Lion Eyes is about a woman who has left a man to go to the cheating side of town. She's gone to look for better, bigger and better places on the other side of town with, with other relationships, and um, I love one of the lyrics in the song says this. He says, uh, my, oh my, you sure know how to arrange things. You set it up so well, so carefully, and it's, ain't it funny how your new life didn't change things? You're still the same old girl you used to be. See, he's singing of this girl who thought the grass was greener on the other side, the, the cheating side of town, and the lies that she had been sold were deceiving. She was told she would be satisfied and that it would change and make her life better, and and the songwriter and singer says, that cheating side of town didn't work. It didn't satisfy you. It didn't give you what you thought it would. And so at the heart of the deceitfulness of all lies is this lingering emptiness. Right? Like it, big promises, low fulfillment level. Always. Always big promises, always low fulfillment levels. Look at verse 3. The psalmist then asks in a rhetorical fashion, he's, he's really conversing with the Lord now, and he's really interacting with his distress over the lies, and he says, what shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? In other words, he's asking, what do, what do lies deserve? What, what, what is it that, that em empty, deceitful, distressing lies deserve? And the answer is, it deserves judgment. Look at verse 4. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. See, the, the broom tree, it's, it's pretty much identified as the juniper tree. It was a, a tree that had hard wood, which meant it burned longer and hotter and lasted longer. And, and the arrows were sharp and accurate. 
And in the scriptures, the way they use arrows oftentimes is as a mechanism of God's judgment. And so here, the psalmist is saying, the lies, the deceitfulness of lies deserve judgment. Only judgment can change the direction of deceit. Only judgment can bring about the full exposure of what's going, around, what's going on around this man. So I would say it like this. I would say that the subtle deceit of lies in our lives and in his will be fully exposed by judgment. Um, some of us hear that language of judgment and we're offended by it. Um, we're concerned with it. You know, our experience with judgment perhaps has been, you know, outward focus. It's been vocal. It's been loud. It's been obnoxious. Um, but really, when the scriptures speak of judgment, um, the, the warnings that scriptures give about judgment is not to stir fear in us. It's actually to stir change in us. And so what the psalmist is identifying is that there is a judgment coming towards the deceitfulness of lies. Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament tells us of this final and ultimate judgment when it says that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, in that passage, we see the psalmist. He's not fearful of judgment. He's actually anxiously anticipating the arrival of it, that all wrong things would be made right, that all sad things would come untrue, that everything that is evil and unjust and wicked both out in the world and inside our hearts would be fully exposed. The lies that are deceitful and subtle will be exposed by judgment. And so that leads us inevitably to his conclusion of the destruction of lies in verses 5 to 7. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Uh, Meshech is, was uh, really the southeastern edge of the Black Sea, and so it's really like South Russia of what we know today. And Qadar was in the Arabian desert, and so they're really separated in distance. And so what most people think is, is he's not giving us a list of prior addresses. Uh, the psalmist isn't actually saying, I lived in both of these places. He's metaphorically showing how he's a wanderer. And he's, he's metaphorically showing us how he's a wanderer, not in pleasant places, because Meshik was known for, for hoodlums. They were known for, like, thugs. It was, it was a really, it was a rough place. It's like, it's not a place you really just want to roll into on your own terms and, and unprotected. So, so Meshik was that. Kadar was these, these uh, you know, they, they were these wanderers, uh, the, the Bedouin wanderers who, who were, they had a reputation for being very barbaric, they were like savages. They were like wild beasts. And so here he gives us this picture of the believer who lives in the middle of that. Like he's saying, I am wandering in the middle of thugs and savages. And that's his experience that he's feeling in his bones. 
and it begins to work inside of him in a way that he cries out and longs for desperate help. See, the description of the destruction that lies create is a description of lostness, confusion, uncertainty, doubt, all of these things that we, even as believers today, face in the midst of the world that we're walking in. I mean, you know how the Bible describes the Christian. It uses the language of a sojourner, a pilgrim, an alien. In other words, this is not our home. So the psalmist begins to draw out in us this sense in which we are not to find great comfort here. The psalmist begins to feel in the tension of his bones and his life and the very marrow of his living that this is not where he was meant to dwell. That he's lived here for too long. And so he concludes, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. See, this psalm is actually less about what's going on around him and more about what's going on within him. This psalm ultimately is about repentance. Now, when you and I hear that word, it, it kind of, maybe it sticks in our tongue a little bit. Like, repentance is not something that we, you know, verbalize all of the time, perhaps in our ordinary conversation, but repentance was a very big thing for Jesus. Like, some of the first recorded words we have of Jesus is, is to repent and to believe in the gospel. You know, his, for, his, his forerunner, John the Baptist, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we think of repentance, we perhaps think of regret for bad decisions or sorrow for poor behavior or something along those lines. But repentance is actually something much, much deeper. See, repentance is beginning to have a deep disgust and a distaste for the lies that dwell within us and for the lies that are around us. It's this distaste for the lies of the world that they're constantly selling us It's saying no to these lies and yes to God's truth. That's what repentance is. Um, Let me kind of close with a few thoughts on this. Um, Yesterday, Saturday, yes, yesterday marked two years uh, of mourning the uh, shooting in Charleston, South Carolina um, at the church Bible study. You've heard this in the media, nine Individuals were killed. Dylan Roof was the young man who had entered into this church Bible study. This was an African-American church, and so he had entered into this church. He's, he's a white young man. He enters into this church, and he's warmly embraced. They engage with him for over an hour in this Bible study, welcoming him, engaging with him, and then he maliciously kills them all. And um, several weeks later, might have been months, there was a bond hearing um, for this young man, and it was recorded. And it, it, it just showed the young man. It didn't show the victim's families, but it was recorded. And this young man is in his cell, and he's, he's, he's given an opportunity to hear from the, the victim's families. And if you've seen this video, it's, in, it's really incredible. These victim f- families are obviously destroyed and utterly undone by the evil that's been committed against their family members, 
But every one of them, to the T, offers this young man forgiveness. They say, we forgive you for what you've taken from us. We forgive you for what you've done to us. And at the end of, I don't know if it's every one of them, but most of them, there is this offer to repent and to believe. To repent from the evil that he's done and to believe in the good news of what Christ has done for people like him. And the question I began to ask, and it rang in my mind, is as this psalmist really leaves us on a cliff, he doesn't resolve it for us, was how can people forgive for such horrendous evil like that? Like, how can you offer forgiveness to people who show no remorse from their sinfulness? Like, this young man showed no remorse, no repentance, none. Yet they offered forgiveness. And I began to ask myself, how could the psalmist even begin to, to, to begin to think about resolving the situation and the scenarios that he's in. And here's the answer. That there is a man of peace who came into a culture that is at war with God and his name is Jesus. That Jesus came to reconcile the world that is at odds with God. And Jesus came and he lived the life of peace. He lived with his neighbor and he loved his neighbor as he ought to, yet he died the death of war. He willingly embraced all of the horrendous and false accusations upon him. He bore in his body the very wrath of the living God that should have come towards the liars in the world, but instead fell on him. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus would say this, and I'll I'll close with these words. Jesus would say this. He would say, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, what Jesus is telling us there is not that we shouldn't love our families. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when we love our families, our love for Christ ought to look like hate compared to our love for Christ. In other words, the way we love Christ ought to be so beautifully and displayed for the world to see that the way we love our families almost looks like hatred. And that's what that family in South Carolina, that's what those families in South Carolina were doing. It almost looked like unjust forgiveness that they were offering, but what they were offering them was the way to life. See, the only way for you and I to see clearly in this world that's filled with lies is through the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and the life that he offers you in it. So two questions I'll leave you lingering with is, have you put your life to death on the cross? Have you stopped believing the swirling lies that the world is telling and selling to you constantly? And have you found your life by actually losing your life? By giving it up in such a way that your love for your family would even look like hatred? Oh, that we would repent and believe the gospel like that, Church of God. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for these words of honesty from this psalmist whom we don't know who it is, and you certainly do. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us clearly the truth of Jesus in your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to love like that, that you would help us not to be overcome and undone by the lies that the world continually bombards us with, that that we would be overcome and undone and overwhelmed by the truth of the, the cross. So help us, Lord, now to see the truth of your scriptures and to apply it rightly to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.